Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 702. The Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm in good shape. How are you? I'm very, very, very good. I was trying to figure out what our science story is here. You've been conferencing. It sounds like we've had some South African questions being asked along the way. Yep. I went to BIO, which is uh, it's a convenient acronym, but it stands for Biotechnology Innovation Organization. This is a huge umbrella organization that represents the biotechnology industry and academe industry and so on. And they have representatives in, in more than 30 countries. The annual conference was uh, in Philadelphia, which is where I've just been. The amazing thing, though, was that I took a wander into the trade exhibition and I turned right, went right up to the top end of this enormous space. It's the size of an aircraft hangar. It's it's huge, this conference. There was 18,000 people there. Lovely pavilion from South Africa. And, of course, there was the added attraction of some beautiful red and uh, white South African wine to tempt people onto the stand. But uh, it's amazing how many fans we have who, who come out of the woodwork when you go to something like that. And I started talking to all these people, and there's, um, there's all these people who wanted to ask questions. And they said, I can never get through on the telephone. So I said, look, I'll do you a favor. I'm going to get my phone out, and we're going to record some. So I've actually got some uh, that uh, I promised I would play some of these today. So I've got a couple of questions to kick us off with. So I thought this would make a really nice prelude to the show. So would you like to hear some of them? I think that's amazing. I'll have to, in rands, not pounds, pay you for producing <laughs> today's segment of the show. <laughs> yeah, presenter and producer. Okay, well, look, let, let's kick off with this one then. Chris, my name's Ashley Bess. I'm here at the South African Bio Exhibition, and we're here in Philadelphia. I want to know that if you can do transplants of all the organs in the body, is it possible to transplant somebody's brain and keep all the information? Now, obviously, Ashley has presumably been drinking a lot of that lovely red and white wine, which is why he's now worried about the integrity <laughs> of his nervous system. <laughs> yeah, it is a good question. Now, the answer to this is that we can't do a brain transplant at the moment in the sense that if you were to take the brain out of a person, you would have to sever the spinal cord. And the spinal cord and the brain are in very intimate, close connection with each other. And when you cut the connections between one and the other, they do not re-establish. So as a result, if a person, for instance, sustains an injury to their neck and breaks their spinal cord, they develop paralysis. They can't feel anything and they can't move their body. That's not to say, though, that the brain doesn't work fine other than that. And so what you could do, if you took the brain out of somebody, you could potentially move a brain into a new body and the brain and therefore the person would move into that new body. You'd have to give them immunosuppression and that kind of thing and connect all the blood vessels up. But they would have locked-in syndrome. They would not be able to actually uh, feel anything. They would not necessarily be able to hear anything. It depends how you wired up the various nerve circuits. But you could certainly say that that person could be made conscious in a new body. So people are talking about perhaps in the future, if a person ends up with lots of health problems, maybe we will be able to do a brain transplant. But at the moment, the price of doing that would be what we dub locked-in syndrome, and it would be a very high price to pay indeed. Patrick, good morning. Thank you for calling in. You managed uh, to get through. What is your question for Chris? What's a Boltzmann's brain? Okay, did you get that, Chris? I, I'm not familiar with the term. Did you say a Boltzmann's brain? Yes, a Boltzmann's brain theory. 
What is a Boltzmann? I, I just assume that Chris speaks languages that I don't. Boltzmann was a yeah. physicist and a chemist, and he came up with the idea of entropy. I think he might be Austrian. I don't know if this idea might have been Austrian, but he was certainly European. He was working over 100 years ago, and he was clearly a genius. I mean, this person perceived the concept of entropy and how the universe goes from a state of more order towards disorder. So everything is becoming more disordered and more spread out, if you like. And the reason that something happens is because it must have a positive entropy. Entropy moves only in one direction. The idea that things go from order to disorder, which is why if you tidy your house up, when you have a party, the house doesn't, after the party, spontaneously tidy itself up. It's more untidy than it was to start with, and you have to start the laborious task of doing the washing up and and vacuuming the floor to get rid of all the muck that's accumulated. Uh, That is entropy in action. But I've not come up with anyone saying Boltzmann's brain. If if there's more to this, and, and I'm missing the point, do please let me know, everybody. I'm loving these South African questions abroad. Are there any more that you have there? Oh, yeah, I have. Um, Let's go to this one. Hi, my name's Judy. I'm here at the South African Pavilion in Philly. And my question is, why do you go red when you blush? Now, there's a good question. (laughs) Especially when you've got a naked scientist who turns up unclothed on your South African stand in the middle of a trade Mm. conference. Can I I throw in the mixer a typical South African follow-up to that? Is it true that white people are more likely to blush or does it just show more? I think it just shows more because it's all down to physiology. And the reason for this is that blushing is a change in the distribution of blood to the face, the head and neck and the skin surface. And when that happens, blood being red, you tend to see the fact that the face has become redder. Now, why has the human body evolved to do that? Because we use this as a signal. And when people become very angry, they become red in the face. When they become very embarrassed, they go red in the face. Humans are really visual animals. About a third of our brain is devoted to decoding what goes into our eyes. And therefore, we have evolved these very visible signatures of how we're feeling, messages that we're trying to send to each other without actually saying anything. And when we have these emotions, they change the way that the nervous system that controls how much blood is going through the superficial blood vessels in the head and neck, uh, actually how they work. And as a result, you do change the color of the face. Crying is very similar. It's a way of sending without saying anything what you're feeling. And you in, and actually, you know, you say that it's more manifest in white people, white skin. Yes, you can. Yes, you can see it perhaps a bit more visibly. But other changes that go along with it include things like sweating or you know, you know, perspiration, and everyone's going to get that. And you can see when someone's glowing a bit, and this is the same phenomenon. Increase the blood flow to the skin, increase the drive of those nerves to the, to the skin, and you get redness and you get a bit of perspiration. And it's a sign of, of anger or strong emotions. And we think that another part of this is that testosterone... Uh, is also involved in this. If you if you look at animals that have a lot of testosterone, they tend to be quite aggressive, and you know they're, they're more of a threat. And perhaps going bright red in the face, because we regard red as a danger signal. Perhaps by having a very red face, it encourages you to have the psychological edge over your opponent. If you, if you when you get very angry, so that might be another reason why. But it's the same phenomenon. It's diverting more blood to the skin surface to make yourself look scarier and to show that you're you've got strong emotions running. Here's an SMS one. Speaking of running, Chris, with Comrades Marathon ahead of us, someone wants to know what are the dangers of running in general when you are showing signs of the sniffles if you have flu? Well, anything that stresses your body is um, not necessarily going to help you to recover from flu. So if you have flu, 
that's a viral infection. In order to get rid of that viral infection, you need your immune system to move in and start attacking the cells that are infected with flu and getting rid of them. In order to do that, the immune system has to mobilise enormous numbers of resources. You've got to make lots of cells, you have to make neutralising antibodies as well, which is pieces of protein. So you're building enormous amounts of tissue inside your body to fight off an infection. That takes enormous amounts of energy. So if you rob yourself of an energy supply or you stress your body in other ways with excessive exercise, the body is going to is going to rob some of the energy it would be putting into fighting off the infection and put that into the exercise. So the infection could get worse, it could last for longer, you could have more severe symptoms. So the best thing when you get unwell is actually to take it easier, to allow your body to divert more resources into making you recover, rather than robbing Peter to pay Paul, which will, which will actually potentially make you a lot worse and could even make you worse in the sense that you could then catch other things like bacterial infections on top of your viral infection, which in some cases could be life-threatening. So it's better when you become unwell to listen to your body. And if you don't feel like doing exercise, that's your body telling you, don't do it. Because you have all these immune signals, one side effect of which is to make you feel lethargic, make you feel achy, make you feel tired. And that's so you don't overdo it, so the body can make those resources available to fight the infection. Absolutely. No jump for me today then. Don't <laughs> 702. <laughs> I'll just blame it on the naked scientist when my trainer asks me where were you. Jason, good morning. Welcome to the show. What question have you got for Chris? Yes, it's Jason here. Yeah. Since I was born, I've never smelled anything. My sense of smell is completely dead. So I want to know what went wrong, what happened. Or right now, is there a medical procedure that I can go through um, to uh, revive my sense of smell? Because I've never smelled anything. Wow. What went wrong? Jason, good Chris. morning. Well, I'm sorry to hear that uh, you have had a problem with your sense of smell. The medical term for this is anosmia, anosmia, meaning an absence of the ability to smell. There's a range of reasons why this could have happened. One is simply that there's something structural in the nose because the way the smell system works is that right at the top of the nose is a layer of tissue called the olfactory epithelium and it's covered in these sprays of fine nerve endings which have on their surfaces receptors for molecules. And when we sniff something, the flow of air up the nose deposits the mixture of molecules, the bouquet, if you like, of, of what is in the air around us onto that patch of tissue where the molecules engage with those chemical docking stations and when they do so they activate the underlying nerve cells and the constellation of nerve cells that you activate then tell the brain what sorts of smells are present. It's a bit like saying, well, the colours I can see are because light of different wavelengths is coming into my eye, so the colour I see is proportional to the mixtures of wavelengths. It's sort of similar with the smell system. Now, if there's something wrong with that patch of tissue or something's obstructing the flow of air onto that patch of tissue, that can cause it. Another reason why this happens is because there has been trauma at some point, because the nerve connections from that a patch of olfactory epithelium have to go through a structure called the cribriform plate which is a bit like a sieve in the bottom of the skull below the brain and they go through this sieve and then they connect with a bunch of nerve cells in the olfactory bulb which lies on the bottom of the brain above if something happens in your uh, life if you have trauma or head injury for example you can tear the nerve connections between the olfactory epithelium and the olfactory bulb and because they won't always reconnect properly that can interrupt things. So if there's ever been a head injury or some kind of birth trauma, 
that could have done it. And then there are other reasons. There's, there are developmental reasons why some people have a congenital anosmia. They're born without a sense of smell. And the reason is that uh, in these individuals, sometimes the smell system does not wire up properly when the brain is developing. There's, there's something called Kalman's syndrome, where the cells that are concerned with with detecting and then transmitting on the smell system they don't form or take up the the right positions in the nervous system during development and it could be a range of things like that that account for your problem it should be investigated because if it is something reversible like something obstructing the flow of air it could be fixed if it's one of these developmental things or there's been some past trauma it's going to be a bit harder to fix that but you should definitely get it investigated in case there is a reversible cause and then you can get your sense of smell and therefore your your sense of taste will intensify Thank you, Jason, and all the best. Thanks for asking that question. Tony, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Eusebius. Uh, good morning, Dr. Chris. I'd like to know what is the difference between IQ and EQ. Thanks, Tony. Well, IQ is intelligence quotient, and when we're talking about someone's IQ, we're talking about a measure of intelligence which is based on various tests and things. Not everyone thinks the IQ test is a good way of predicting how bright someone is, but it's the best that we have. And it's very dependent, it's very operator dependent, it's very dependent on a person's educational milieu. So for a good example of this is that, for instance, Aborigines who lived in Australia for 40 or 50,000 years and survived in one of the harshest terrains that, that humankind has ever encountered, they're clearly very intelligent because if you can survive in that sort of environment and learn to read the environment in the way that they do, you clearly are not, not short of a few nerve cells. At the same time, if you sat down with some of these people who don't speak English and you give them a test that's in English, then you would conclude, because they'd scored zero, that there must be something wrong with them. This is not the case. So it's very important when interpreting the results of IQ tests that you actually apply the test in a fair way. So that's the, that's the one thing. Now, EQ, uh, the only way I've encountered the term EQ was, was in uh, EQing an audio desk where you're actually setting up the levels of various frequencies. But I'm sure that's not what's intended, uh, you know, like a graphic equaliser. But I'm sure that's not what was intended. Maybe they mean emotional quotient or something. I'm not sure. But um, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the EQ stands for in this context. I think they, uh, that's what's my understanding. I mean, we don't have the person on the line anymore, emotional quotient. Would you have a similar kind of caution in terms of the culture specificity around measuring even emotional intelligence? Yes, although there are things which appear to not be lost in translation in the sense that you can take a human face and the way in which psychologists do these experiments, they're really interesting studies, is that you take a picture of a face and then you take the region of the face which is as though the person were looking through the slit in a pillar box. So you get just the eye region and you present that picture of just the eyes on a piece of paper and you put four words, one at each corner of this, of this rectangle of the face. And it might be sorrow, frustration, happiness, cheerful. And you say to a person, what emotion do you think this person is displaying? And if you do these tests, you tend to find that women perform much better at them than men do. And this is just by looking at just the skin around the eyes and the eyes themselves. You can read enormous amounts into a person's emotion. So we do talk about this emotional uh, ability or the ability to read the emotions of others. It tends to be that men perform less well on average. And people with autism and Asperger's uh, syndrome, they perform very, very poorly on these sorts of tests. So it may be that uh, that was what was being referred to, the ability to have empathy 
the ability to put yourself in the intellectual or mental shoes of another individual in order to think about, well, if I do this, what will their reaction be? Uh, and, and this seems to be something which is um, much better done by women than men. Um, we've got some callers here, but I'm curious, do we have another South African wine-inspired Philly <laughs> question on your side? <laughs> I, I, I do, actually. Are you ready? Here we go. Yeah, no, they're great fun. Let's hear one. Hi, my name is Nicholas Dunias from Altus Biologics. Very happy to be in Philadelphia and speaking today to the naked scientist. And um, the rumors are true. He is naked. What I want to ask is uh, why do humans have three sets of DNA? You know, we have mom's and dad's DNA and then there's a third DNA. What is this DNA? Thank you. There you go. He's right that we have uh, DNA from our mum. We have DNA from our dad. And this is because scientists talk about us having two pairs of each chromosome. There are 23 pairs of chromosomes that make up a human. And if you look in a cell which has got DNA in it, because not all of our cells do, you will find, for instance, two copies of chromosome number one, two copies of chromosome number two. And where did they come from? Well, the answer is you did get one of those from your mother and one from your dad in each case. So in other words, the sperm had one copy of chromosome one, one copy of chromosome two, etc. And the egg had the same. And when you put the two together, you get two number ones, two number twos, two number threes. And so that's why we have two copies of our main human genome. The third kind of DNA that's being referred to is what we call mitochondrial DNA. The mitochondria are tiny bacteria-sized powerhouses in our cells. And in fact, they are originally bacteria. And way back in evolutionary history, a more mature form of cell that we are now made of merged with a bacterial cell and formed a partnership. We call this the endosymbiont theory. And these bacteria provided the ability to produce large amounts of energy in a cell and the cell afforded to the bacteria a ready supply of food and protection. So it was a good partnership. And the bacteria, because bacteria were free-living organisms, still are, they have their own form of DNA in the form of a small circle of DNA with their genes in it. If you look inside a mitochondrion in our cells, you find these bacteriocyte structures which have inside them bacterial-type genetic information. So there are mitochondria in our cells which have their own DNA. The slight wrinkle here is that you inherit those mitochondria almost exclusively, although this year it, we, we realise that it's not entirely true this, almost exclusively from your mother. So you have one set of DNA from your dad, one set of DNA from your mum, they're your main genomic DNA, and then this third type of DNA, your mitochondrial DNA, which uh, came into you from your mum. Sam, welcome to the show. What is your question? Hi, good morning, Eusebius. Uh, my question is based on the impaema complicating by pneumonia as to whether both lungs can be, decodification can be done on both lungs and what will the functions of the lung, the outcomes of the functions, will it be still the same or not? Mm. Thank you. Okay. Okay, so this question concerns the fact that sometimes when you have pneumonia, which is inflammation and infection in the lung tissue, you can then get the infection spreading to the pleural space, which is the, the potential space around the lung. And this is called an empyema, when you get infection in that pleural cavity. And sometimes this doesn't resolve completely and you can end up with the surfaces of the lung being stuck to the surfaces of the chest wall and this this can cause a range of different problems. And 
What can then be done to fix this when the infection is resolved is you have a process called decortication where a surgeon has to go in and then they remove these adherences or adhesions that, that are causing the problem and as a result then things can move more freely again. This is a serious procedure. It's not to be taken lightly and I don't see any reason why you couldn't do it with both lungs but you certainly wouldn't do it on both sides both at once. I wouldn't have thought. I'm not a, a cardiothoracic surgeon so I apologise to any cardiothoracic surgeons where I'm speaking out of turn. Please do ring up and correct me but um, I would be surprised if they would radically go in and do both sides all at once because this is quite a dramatic intervention um, with quite high risk in terms of infection and bleeding and so on so I would suspect that they would do the worst side first and see how you got on and then if there was not sufficient improvement to stabilize things then you might go in and improve things on the other side or if if you responded very well they might go in and do things on the other side once there'd been a, a period of recovery. Let's take a final question, Chris. Asad, thank you so much for holding on. What is your question? Okay, we've lost him with Paul. That's, <laughs> that was that's perfect. <laughs> it's been fascinating. I love those questions you got from Safis Abroad in Philadelphia. Chris, we'll do it again next week. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks, Yusubis. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.